0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 51, Airspace. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, many of whom work in human spaceflight. But there's another part of the NASA story that's often forgotten, and yet it's right in the name NASA itself, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. So today we're talking about that first part, aeronautics. With me today is Harry Roberts, Flight Operations Supervisor for the Aircraft Operations Division out at Ellington Field Airport. That's uh, kind of close to here at the Johnson Space Center. We talk about the operations out at Ellington Field and the aircraft itself that help to make human spaceflight possible. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Harry Roberts. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. We have a podcast. All right, Harry, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast today. This is an interesting episode because it's not something you would sort of think of like right off the bat. Like you think NASA, you think space, but... There's a whole story about aircraft, right? It's actually in the name, National National Aeronautics and Space Administration. So I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely, thanks for having me. All right, so let's first set the scene. Um, we're talking about the Ellington Field Airport. Usually, I mean, we talk to a lot of people here at the Johnson Space Center, but Ellington's like part of Johnson, but it's not on Johnson property. So, so what's the what's the, what's the story there with Ellington Field?
1: right so ellington fields is essentially an airfield where we're allowed to do all of our aircraft operations okay. and aircraft operations would extend from the t-38 which uh, is basically for the astronauts space flight readiness training program uh, we have our Gulfstream aircraft so a g3 and a g5 out there our uh, wb-57 mm-hmm. uh, and then also when the guppy comes into town that's where we're going to store it
0: so it's kind of a house for yeah. all of these places like that's where they're you you have them there. That's where they stay. That's where they're maintained. Uh, so it's kind of like a base of operations. You need the space because you need runways and stuff. So who else do you share Ellington Field with? Is it just NASA or do you, is it for other things?
1: No, actually, so it's a, a joint reserve base. So you have uh, Army National Guard out there. We have the uh, Air Force National Guard, which operates uh, a couple different aircraft to include the F-16s and some UAVs and then we also have just a regular fixed base operation center which is for civilian aircraft so they have uh, a general aviation flight school there also
0: so military you got NASA planes you got civilian planes so it's it's not it's not like your typical airport like if you were going to take a flight i don't know if you were to book a flight and take it on like a seven, I don't know, 737, whatever aircraft. This is totally different. This is just a smaller airport. What, what other kinds of cool aircraft do you see? I mean, I, I, I remember seeing helicopters there sometimes too.
1: Yeah. So the Air National Guard will occasionally operate the Apache yeah. longboat. And then uh, one of the other people I forgot to mention was the Coast Guard. So they'll operate oh. their uh, their helicopters out of there in support of different operations.
0: Nice. Okay. So aircraft operations. The where this sort of fits into the story of NASA, how how does that work in relation to the Johnson Space Center?
1: Right. So aircraft operations division falls under the uh, flight operations directorate, uh, and so we play our role in that. We are there to support the astronauts in order to get them trained and ready for spaceflight readiness.
0: Trained how? What are you What are you training them for?
1: Uh, so all sorts of things. Uh, the great thing about the T thirty eight and the aircraft that they primarily operate out of. Is that it facilitates them learning a bunch of different aspects uh, from crew coordination and communication inside and outside uh, as well as you know just the ability to manipulate different things Uh, one interesting fact right now the astronaut or the astronaut candidates are actually there uh, down in the maintenance area and they're actually turning wrenches and working on the aircraft that they go out and fly so it's pretty neat and they learn a lot in that aspect because not only do they fly the aircraft and learn about it from that aspect but they also get to turn the wrenches because it's when you're on the uh, the space station, you can't exactly have a, a you know a call out and say, hey, can you guys come up here and fix this? Yeah, uh, they have to facilitate all that on their own So,
0: so it's kind of immersing yourself in this world of uh, that's one thing I I always am just totally fascinated by with astronauts is is you're absolutely right, you're not just spacewalking and flying around in space. No, you are there to do everything. You are the research. You're the researcher. You're the scientist. You're the plumber. <laughs> you're, you're you're everything. You maintain the, the spacecraft. I mean, you have plenty of support from the ground, but it's ultimately going to be you, like you said, turning the wrench.
1: Absolutely, so, yeah. So they get to learn all those things here on Earth right before they get to go practice it in space. Uh, and it, it provides another opportunity that is a little bit different than a simulator a simulator you kind of know that there's not a whole lot of repercussions that are to come out of it because it is a simulator yeah but when you're in an airplane and you're operating out there it's a fluid dynamic environment things are constantly changing whether it's the weather or your fuel state or you know the, the engine and how it's operating you have to be able to adapt to those changes real time and there's no better platform to provide that than a lot of times actually being in an aircraft
0: Is it this sense of kind of accountability, maybe, that ultimately it's it's your hands turning this aircraft, so you have to make sure you put the care into it because it's going to be you flying it?
1: Absolutely. Accountability, and I'd also think kind of like an appreciation, right? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, you take a lot of people who aren't used to that, and they've kind of spent a lot of time in the academic environment, uh, and now you get to put them in a different environment that they might not necessarily feel comfortable with. So they get to explore that. Uh, before it's game time, if you will, you know, being either on one of our vehicles or on the space station.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's just dive right into the aircraft. We're already hinting at one of them, the T-38, and this is the one that astronauts are uh, quote-unquote training in and, and doing some of the maintenance, but then also ultimately flying. So what, what is the T-38? What's the history there?
1: So the T-38 originated as a Air Force training aircraft, right? So in order to go on to any of the follow-on jet aircraft, they had to start off there. Uh, and we adopted it in the early '60s and have been using it ever since.
0: <laughs> okay, so it's an it's an older piece of equipment then.
1: It is, yeah. Some of the uh, airframes that we have out there have been out there since uh, the early capsule days.
0: You can actually—it's kind of impressive, actually, that they're they are still running. As props to the maintenance guys that actually keep the the pr- planes going. Then,
1: absolutely, we have a fantastic maintenance department that spends countless hours kinda out there turning the wrenches, keeping the aircraft well-maintained and ready to go for everyday flight requirements that we have.
0: So why was the T-38 the plane that was selected in the 60s? What's So what's good about that? If this particular plane you can train on?
1: Um, it's provided a, a lot of different things. One of which is redundancy, right? You have uh, two engines, which is, if you talk to a lot of fighter aircraft pilots, they're going to tell you, you know, two is always better than one. But it also provides you a very simple platform on which to operate from. Because as you get into other more complex systems like the F-16 or the F-18, it can get very difficult when you're talking about even a simple system like the hydraulic system or the... uh, the environmental control system. It gets really complicated, but here in the T-38 it's actually pretty simplistic. So it makes it one, easy to maintain, and then two, easy for the astronauts to kind of come into learn, and then go out and operate almost immediately.
0: So are the are all astronauts flying these jets or is it mainly the pilots that are really grabbing the stick? Or I, I guess, I don't know.
1: So right now it, it is the pilots that are re- primarily responsible for safety flight and aircraft control, uh, but we do offer the uh, RCQs, so the Rear Cockpit Qualified Individuals, so they're going to have the opportunity to kind of learn the aircraft. There's a stick in the back also, so hmm. if they had the opportunity, they could uh, absolutely fly the aircraft from the back. So it's, I'm more than positive it's been done before.
0: So I'm, I'm trying to imagine the, the shape of this plane. I'm imagining sort of a tiny jet, right? It's a fairly small aircraft, right, compared to other jets that you would probably fly. Um, and so the benefit of that is uh, wh- what, what kind of environment is good for an astronaut to really immerse themselves in for the T-38? Is it altitude, speed, acceleration? It's kind
1: of all of those things okay. because it, it provides that environment that is a little bit different, right? You're taking, again, people who might not be used to this, and you're putting a helmet on them, you're putting a mask on them. So it's a little bit restrictive. So then they start to get used to those kinds of things. Uh, the speed at which it travels and, you know, manipulates Um, And then additionally, you also have gravitational forces that can be put upon the astronauts while they're operating inside the aircraft. And so that's something that can help them kind of get used to the environment that they're about to go into, right? Mm. I think it was one of the astronauts that had talked about in the past how her experiences in the plane and how she'd been exposed to those things and how to operate in a uh, very dynamic situation in which the aircraft was maneuvering. uh, It helped facilitate her being able to perform well while she was Know, on the uh, shuttle as well as when they're going up into the space station so
0: oh so you're sort of i guess training your body to realize what's to come for a space flight oh man you know i'm gonna feel g-forces this way and that's how it feels being really high and i gotta make sure i breathe this way so you're sort of conditioning your body to really get ready for that next step which is Going to space.
1: Right. Condition your body as well as probably training your mind to start thinking outside uh, the box yeah. and develop those uh, problem solving skills that you might not necessarily be adapt to utilizing. And, you know, really think ahead of what it is that you're about to do. So when the astronauts are on an EVA, for example, um, thinking about how much fuel that they have in the aircraft kind of translate to how much oxygen they have in their suit while they're on that EVA. They have to manage that. They also have to think about, OK, this is how much I have left. This is what I need to start thinking about. Yeah, coming back inside and what I need to start doing to facilitate all those different things.
0: So what's like a typical flight? If you, were to, if you were to hop into the back of a T-38 and say, okay, now's your training, so where are you going? What are you doing? For how long?
1: So we have uh, various different phases that we put them through. Initially, when they come through, they get uh, essentially it's called contacts. It's a familiarization with the aircraft just to get the basic feel for it. Then after that, they go to uh, navigation phase, which is going to be instruments. They learn how to uh, navigate on the airways. Uh, because it doesn't operate the same as uh, an interstate system down here on Earth. Uh, And then after that, they move into uh, an air navigation phase, which is where they'll go to several different facilities or bases, uh, fly out of there, and then come back. And then finally, they do a uh, formation phase. So they'll actually fly in close proximity to another aircraft.
0: Oh, okay. So there's several phases in a single flight, or is it like a step-by-step? like Step-by-step, uh step, usually. So okay.
1: we work them up to those various phases, but uh, I see. in any given flight, it, it could be uh, different. It just depends on where that particular individual is. So some of the astronauts who are complete, uh, then they might go and uh, use a T-38, say, to go to um, talk to someone for SpaceX, or that's what the commercial crew is doing, right? They'll go talk to someone out there at SpaceX, or they'll go use it to uh, visit the facility at Kennedy and see what's going on over there. It, it just kind of helps us, uh, one, get them going where they need to go, but then at the same time, they get to train uh, while they're going up in that aircraft.
0: Oh, I see. Okay, so it's kind of like instead of, you know, booking like a commercial flight and just going to visit the center, now you can get some training on the way to your destination. Right. Oh, Okay. And they several destinations, I guess, right? You said Kennedy was one of them. You can go out to, is it is it Hawthorne in California, where you're going to see SpaceX, or is is yeah. it uh, also in Kennedy?
1: Well, so it, it just depends on where they're at and what I they're see. trying to do, right? So, uh, uh, for, for example, we have, we're dropping off some of uh, the components out to the Kennedy Space Station, or, sorry, the Kennedy Center, uh, so that way they can see what's going on out there. Then they'll go out to, uh, Long Beach is actually where they land to go, Uh, visit SpaceX out in California and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. I was just there a couple weeks ago, so I'm I'm trying to familiarize myself with the area. Okay, so Long Beach Airport. That makes sense. So I guess astronauts are, are they the primary users of the T-38, or are there other pilots that are using them?
1: Those are the primary users for the T-38. We have instructor pilots that teach, uh, but primarily it's going to be the astronauts who are utilizing the aircraft the most.
0: Okay. Do you really take them through the ringer at, at any given point? Because you said there's, there's an element of problem solving that goes into whenever you're an astronaut on these planes. Maybe do you take them through a run where something's going wrong and you have to have some kind of snap judgment to say this is the right call or, or any kind of, uh, I don't know, contingency situation, something like that?
1: Sure. So we have simulators. Uh, oh, okay. and then what we'll utilize that simulator for is emergency procedures so i guess i'm familiarized with the checklist as well as how to operate it and then start making those judgments and decisions on the ground uh, and we can kind of amp up the scenario it, it's fully graphics as far as being able to see outside the uh, cockpit and stuff like that so it provides that realism that is kind of often absent in some of the simulations but uh, at the same time it allows us to kind of utilize it as a Uh, a teaching environment as opposed to this is going to be a catastrophic event if you don't absolutely get this right right now. Yeah.
0: Are the simulators out at Ellington Field too then?
1: They're actually here on site.
0: Oh really? Mm -hmm. Oh I where are they? I want to check them out. (laughs) 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 I'd like to take a ride for them. I mean not in sort of any kind of problem I would probably freak out but uh, just to see what it's like to fly inside. It's always so cool going out to Ellington Field because you just hear the jets going by all the time and it's really it's kind of a cool environment absolutely yeah it's my
1: favorite <laughs> part of coming into work every day
0: yeah <laughs> hearing jets and helicopters and all kinds of cool aircraft going by you know i'm kind of blown away though by the fact that um, y- these planes are from the 60s I- i'm sure there's been some upgrades over the past that really help you to maintain them right sure
1: so the t38 started out obviously they have a series and so the a model was the very first one and we've upgraded since then we're actually uh, the t38 november so N. Uh, yeah. we've done significant upgrades to the avionics with inside the aircraft for the most part a, a lot of it has remained the same there were some um, modifications that were done to the uh, air inlets so yeah. we actually changed the way they were designed and the air force actually adopted them because they still fly the t-38 for their uh, jet training and then we made some other modifications along the way as far as different systems they obviously get upgraded and uh, we had the change with the times. We're still making more upgrades as far as different systems that have to operate with the uh, FAA and stuff like that.
0: Really getting your use out of it, though. If it's a 1960s plan, that's not bad. Absolutely. Um, So if you're you're an astronaut training for the T-38, you're learning these new upgrades. How often are you coming back to sort of just maintain your familiarization with the aircraft?
1: So each of the astronauts, whether they're the pilots or they're sitting in the back, have a quarterly requirement that they're required to maintain a certain number of hours each quarter. So I see. they have to get those quarterly requirements and then also maintain a certain uh, number of landings if you're actually the pilot. So they come back pretty pretty often.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a quarterly requirement to fly a plane. Yeah. I would love flying so much, but uh, I don't know. I guess if you're if you're answering media calls, it's not exactly the same as flying in space. Correct. All right, so the T 38 is one of them that you have. Actually, there, you have a couple of them, right? How many T 38s do you have?
1: We have several. So, it, it just oh, okay. however many are operational that day, it kind of depends uh, due to the maintenance cycle. But we have uh, quite a few T 38s out there. It's pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, um, and you have to maintain all of them. How about that? So you have this, this section of Ellington Airport that's dedicated to NASA. you got, you know, you're sharing the space, and you got the T-38s over here. Another aircraft you have are, is it two Gulfstream aircraft, right? Two Correct, Gulfstream yeah, planes? the
1: uh, G-5 and the G-3.
0: Awesome. Okay, so what are they used for?
1: So each of those are used for primarily science missions. Uh, hmm. The G-5 we recently acquired, and we're using that almost uh, exclusively for the direct return mission. So each time the astronauts come back from the station and they land in Kazakhstan, we actually— go there, pick them up in the G5, and that way we can return them within 24 hours. So that way all the data collection can be uh, quickly acquired as opposed to having them come, you know, say via commercial or something like that. Plus, it -hmm. just facilitates them being able to have an environment that's a little bit more comfortable for them on the return home because, uh, as you know, it can be a pretty arduous adventure out there for six months to a year on the station and then coming back. Um, And then the G3, we also use that. in place of the G5 to do the direct return mission, but we also have different missions that we do. Uh, they actually just got back from, it's called OMG, so Oceans Melting Greenland, uh, and they go out to the uh, polar ice caps and they do some kind of mapping with a, um, essentially they have a pod that goes in around, they have specific lines that they go back and forth over Greenland and they map uh, the, the differential between what the ice is now and what it's been in the past. I, I think it's been going on for about two years now. So it's pretty interesting.
0: Wow. I guess how often are they doing that flying out the Greenland?
1: So they do that particular mission at, at least once a year. It's typically, uh, oh. we actually just got back. So it's uh, late February, early March. And then uh, after that, occasionally there happens in the fall, but uh, primarily we've been supporting the one in the springtime.
0: Have you gone on any of those flights and seen?
1: I haven't myself. Oh, no. That'd be cool. Yeah.
0: So um I I know uh, Gulfstreams are, uh, it's it's actually a, a Gulfstream is a, is a company Gulfstream Aerospace right and they right. and they build private jets. Right. So this it sounds like this is not your typical private jet if it's being used for for science and direct return missions. So. If, if i'm imagining a, a g5 i imagine sort of sort of like lounge area right <laughs> with with a bar this is not that right so what's the what's inside the g5
1: yeah it's not so much Mad Men 1965 <laughs> uh air aircraft but it, it, so on the direct return mission we'll actually modify each of the aircraft to kind of adapt to whatever mission is going to support so for oh. the direct return mission we can actually when we had uh, two astronauts coming back we had two beds in there so that way they can lay down on the beds oh yeah uh, there's you know, different medical things in there so that way they can be attended to while they're actually coming back mm-hmm. if they have any kind of issues obviously it has a, uh, a, a laboratory on board and then some other things so that way they can have kind of like a kitchen a galley essentially uh, and then if we're doing a science mission we'll alter that and we'll take out those beds or we'll take out some of the chairs and we'll roll on pallets of just basically computer Equipment and say, okay, here we'll fix it to the uh, the floor inside the aircraft, mm-hmm. and then the scientists essentially are sitting in a very comfortable chair uh, <laughs> while they operate their computer system that's sitting right in front of them to do whatever it is that they're whatever data collection they're trying to achieve.
0: So it's kind of it's not really customized on the inside at all. You're really just using the plane because I guess it's fast and it's you can it's easily modified so you can switch it to whatever to whatever you want. Um, and especially, you said, the, for the direct-turn missions, now you have this plane that's dedicated to, from a scientific perspective, getting these astronauts back to do medical testing to make sure they have enough rest. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. Well, we do uh, some other modifications. So the G3 has a uh, tube essentially in the back of it to drop <laughs> buoys out of it. So they would drop the uh on some of the Greenland missions to measure the water temperature and see, okay, how much is the temperature of the—, uh, the nor- the northern oceans actually rising and then identify that information. Additionally, we were going to put uh, Nader windows inside the G5. And so those windows will provide the scientists to utilize uh, optical measuring instruments so that way they can gather some other data for whatever missions that they might be doing.
0: Nader windows. That's a very nautical way of saying like a window on the ground, window on the floor. Correct. right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then uh, I guess you can actually drop you can drop stuff into the ocean too. Okay, that's cool. Do you need a public affairs officer for a science mission or or, a, or well, a G5 mission? I
1: actually just saw a story last night on the news, and they're talking about uh, one of the other research centers that sent out their aircraft, a the P30, yeah. to go to this exact mission.
0: So maybe there's a chance for you in the future. <laughs> All right, just keep me in mind. <laughs> um, so science, you got the uh, direct uh, direct return missions. Now you're you're maintaining this aircraft too, right? So so what are you doing to maintain and, and to uh, sort of make sure it's, it's, going to be, it's going to work when you need it to work.
1: Right. So there's different phases of inspection that it has to go through uh, based on how many flight hours it's uh, actually done and completed. Hmm. So based on those different kind of requirements, we'll go ahead and initiate whatever maintenance requirements that we have to do. Uh, it's really nice that we're able to do a lot of that stuff in-house, and we've kind of coordinated with uh, manufacturers of the engine as well as you know, just different components within the aircraft. Uh, inside of AOD there's actually a lot of different people so there's the maintenance team, the operations team, the uh, engineering team and so to get things changed we really just have to kind of go down the hall and say hey this is something that we'd like to adjust or change inside the aircraft is that a possibility and then the team of engineers goes to work, and they start to figure out, you know, hey, is this going to fit inside the aircraft? Uh, are the engines capable of supporting this? As far as uh, electronic loads, just different things like that. So it's actually really interesting to see how this all works and kind of comes together, uh, and it's all organic and in-house as opposed to a lot of different corporations that would have to kind of outsource this to whoever actually manufactured those particular components.
0: Yeah, and you can justify by saying that this is something that you're doing pretty often, right? So you got couple flights per year, uh, for that you gotta go over to Kazakhstan and for a crew return. You got some these science missions that you're doing too. So there's 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 a use case for it. Um, so those are two aircraft, T thirty eight I'm just gonna go through the aircraft. I'm sure. just gonna so we got the uh, Gulf Stream and uh there are two Gulf Streams and the T thirty eights. One that is always so cool to talk about is the W B fifty seven. And that one's the high altitude plane, very unique looking. It's got super Big wings, and it's known because it can fly super high, right? Is it technically can it is it technically in space when it's flying? I don't know what where's the threshold for for space. Is it sixty thousand six? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's just underneath. But they do wear pressure suits oh. uh, because of the altitude at which they're operating at. Uh, and if you had a uh, loss of cabin pressure and you're flying at that altitude, the air is just so thin. The useful uh, time of consciousness is. Uh, microseconds probably at that point so you would need to be inside that pressure suit in order to function at that altitude um yeah no that is probably one of the more interesting planes the giant wings on it were not the original ones they're actually a uh, a little bit different as far as shape but they started to notice some uh, structural damage that was occurring um an aircraft that old is probably still not the the engineers who built that probably did not anticipate it's still flying well into <laughs> uh, the 20 teens into the 2020s so, so it's
0: another old aircraft then
1: absolutely yeah that uh, one of the aircraft uh, nasa 927 is actually was in the boneyard in davis mothin for 41 years before we brought it back to life uh, after two years and it is now one of the uh, one of our aircraft that is actually flying so after it's one of the longest uh, stints inside the boneyard and to be brought back.
0: The WB 57?
1: That particular one, NASA 927. Yes.
0: Okay. That particular, oh, cause, cause there's only a few of them, right?
1: Right. We only have three.
0: Okay. Are, are they the only three in the world? Or they, are they are
1: the only three that are continuing to operate at this time for high altitude research.
0: Wow. So 41 years in the boneyard. Does that mean it's just sitting somewhere completely unattended for 41 years?
1: Yeah, they do some kind of uh, essentially setting it up so that way it can kind of go into this long-term storage. Uh, but they are they probably don't anticipate that it's ever really <laughs> going to get brought back. Yeah. And if they do, it's uh, in a much lesser capacity than what this one is actually operating at. It's, uh, it's definitely getting its work done
0: yeah for sure so you got n- new wings on it like you said but um, it's it's doing high altitude flights is that the main purpose of it is it uh, is it science is it training
1: so there's a lot of science so they kind of I think originally back in the uh, early days of the WB they were doing some research to identify whether or not this uh, the radiation levels up at that altitude what they were like and kind of how do we get that information? How do we collect this data, right? And so you can actually go to the source, sixty thousand feet, sixty-five thousand, and collect that information. Uh, some of the cooler things that it's done is during the solar eclipse. We had two of them that tracked right underneath the actual path of totality, oh, and it was awesome. actually to give the scientists back on Earth a little bit longer view, right? Because in whatever particular spot you were on within that path, you had a very short window that you're actually able to observe the the solar eclipse, but here in the totality,
0: it was like two minutes, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But here
1: we were able to track it and we had one aircraft, uh, and essentially separated by a couple of miles onside that, on that path. And as it traveled along that path, we're able to kind of monitor and, uh, capture all that data. So it was pretty interesting.
0: So how long were you able to extend your total amount of time in? I think it was about eight minutes, which is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Quadruple.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, some of the other things. So after, uh, the shuttle accident with the, uh, the Columbia, they were able to right. identify, hey, this was something that happened uh, when the space shuttle was already on its way up on the, during the ascent. So we couldn't actually see what fell off the space shuttle and we couldn't see uh, how it impacted. So what they came up with is they're like, hey, we're going to put some cameras on this aircraft and we can h- fly it at such an altitude that we can actually observe the space shuttle as it goes through its uh, ascent and then gather that information and see if there's anything going on that we might not be able to identify initially. Uh, So we'd have that information right after launch as opposed to having to wait till you know, during reentry.
0: So after return to flight, after Columbia, you Mm -hmm. were flying WB-57s out at launch at Kennedy? Correct. Oh, okay. And observing, oh, I guess you had a lot of time, right, because you were flying high altitude planes, so you had some, you had a good view for for quite some time until it passed 60,000 feet, I guess. Yeah. Or maybe even beyond that? Could it tilt up? I don't know where Well, it can tilt was. up,
1: but um, you're still not going to be able to look down at it once it passes you. But ah, you can yeah. still see uh, it's going to give you a much better view than, you know, because at that point the atmosphere is so thin, so mm-hmm. it gives you a much uh, better unobstructed view of kind of the spacecraft at that point.
0: So it was pretty operational for a while after return to flight it was it was used for for shuttle missions and you got some cool science opportunities there that you can do what else can the is the wB57 used for is it is it a trainer uh, uh, aircraft at all where air uh, astronauts are getting suited up inside
1: so some of the astronauts have gotten suited up in it and oh. that's just to kind of you know see what the pressure suit environment is going to be like and yeah. see all that stuff as opposed to. Uh, again, it just gives you a different simulation, right? They can go to the NBL, but it's going to be a little bit different to put on that suit and be in a situation like that. Uh, so, some of the astronauts have gotten in it uh, and had the opportunity to kind of go and fly. So, it's been pretty cool
0: for them. Wow. Yeah. What have Have you Have you ridden in it? <laughs> no. Oh man. <laughs> you should. You're You're yeah. You're leading the charge. You got. Hey, I got to do this for 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 research purposes. Right? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Research purposes. Well, what
0: What do the uh, What do the astronauts say about it? What do they um, What do they take away from it?
1: Uh, it's just a unique opportunity and experience to kind of get that feeling ahead of time, right? Mm. There's always that opportunity where you're going to sit in the seat and uh, there's no time like game time, essentially. But yeah. this provides you the opportunity to kind of do it before you get there. So uh, it provides them a little bit of a foundation to kind of build off of.
0: I see. Okay, I've seen uh, I've seen some suit up activities. It's pretty it's pretty cool. Um, what the pilots have to do to actually get prepared to go in a WB57 they actually sit down and, and you have some uh, I don't know uh, technicians or, or some, some experts who are there helping you to put the gloves on and put the helmet on and make sure everything is sealed and then you get like this little looks like a suitcase I think, but it's isn't it your oxygen or the pressure itself or
1: yeah so it's circulating the oxygen with yeah. inside the suit. Uh, so the aviation life sort support system, guys they're there helping them get suited put it all on make sure that the system checks out they actually do a pressure check so they inflate the suit to make sure that there's no leaks and then they actually uh, take all the air out so that way they can say hey are you still be able to breathe off of the oxygen that's being supplied to you at this point hmm. uh, and then after that they walk to the aircraft um, that system that they're carrying with them is actually kind of two-piece in that it allows them to have circulation while they're uh, out there because as you know, during the summertime here in Houston, it gets pretty warm. Uh, so even though we'll take them in a truck and drive them to the, uh, the aircraft and get them inside as quickly as possible, uh, it can still get pretty hot in that suit. Uh, so they definitely want to keep that as cool as possible.
0: Oh, I can imagine. I've, I've actually seen them, um, in order to take a drink in the pressure suit, they, it's different because, um, it, it's not like you can just pull back your mask and, uh, and start sucking away at the drink bag. They actually have a straw that they put through the helmet, right? And it's like, that's how, they, that's how they get it through their pressure suit. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting way to take a drink. But yeah, I guess if you're cool and you need some, or you're hot and you need a way to cool off, that's a good way to do it. Uh, another aircraft that is particularly interesting is one called the Super Guppy. So what's this one?
1: So the Super Guppy is kind of a, an amalgamation of a bunch of different aircraft. Huh. So essentially what they did is uh, they had a problem. We have to transport these various pieces of equipment, and it started back in the, uh, the early capsule days. And they're like, how do we get this stuff from where it is now, kind of all over the country, back to you know either Kennedy or Houston or something like that to do the science and the research on it and also put it all together. Uh, and so they kind of came up with this aircraft and it's just various pieces of a bunch of different aircraft that they assembled together and they said okay this is you know what we're going to go with <laughs> and now you have the super guppy and so <laughs> it's, uh, it's this is the last of i think four super guppies that they built um so it, it is again another old aircraft but it's pro- uh, proven extremely useful and uh, it's been huge i mean it's already provided mission support for em1 uh, next week it's going to deliver some components for em2 so, um, yeah, that's one of the things I've had to learn here is uh, the acronym. So it moved the uh, multi-purpose crew vehicle stage adapter uh, last week for EM-1, and now it's going to move the uh, heat shield skin for EM-2 next week.
0: Okay. So the, the, the purpose of this aircraft, and you said it's like an amalgamation, I think was the word you used, mm-hmm. of, of several different aircraft. And I'm imagining if you would imagine, like, the central tube, of a, and I'm not good with aircraft terms, so just you know, <laughs> stay with me. Um, it's the central tube of a of a aircraft. It's like the front is just kind of blown up like a balloon, almost, right? So it yeah. looks like a looks like a flying manatee. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know it's a good that's, a good comparison. That's probably good uh, <laughs> because it's
1: uh, the replacement aircraft for that is called the Super Beluga. Super so, Beluga. Uh, I guess Manatee would be pretty good. No, essentially, what they did is so the fuselage uh, is. Fuselage, there it is. Yeah, the fuselage is going to be the the main tube portion. And then essentially, what they did is the uh, upper top portion of the fuselage. They kind of expanded it as well as uh, elongated it so that way it would kind of fit whatever was going to be in there. I think it's uh, about 25 feet in diameter inside. Uh, We can actually fit uh, all sorts of different things. So they do more than just move uh, various components of, like, Orion around. They actually move around T-38s that are broken. uh, And if it's broken beyond the point that it can actually fly, then we can actually load it up in the Super Guppy and then move it to wherever we're going to do our long-term maintenance on it. It's uh, moved an MB-22 fuselage, which is the... uh, the Marine Corps and Air Force's Osprey aircraft, the uh, tilt rotor aircraft. Yeah. So that fuselage, it's moved that. So it, it, it's done quite a few different things. But
0: Osprey is a cool aircraft, right? That's, that's the one that sort of takes off like a helicopter, and then the propellers move from the top sort of forward, and you can right. turn it pretty much into a plane. It's like yeah. a hybrid helicopter plane. It's a pretty cool aircraft. So you pretty much the, – the benefit of the Super Guppy is it's got such this weird shape that you can put – stuff inside and transport it that wouldn't fit inside of another aircraft. That's, that's the benefit of it,
1: right? It's, it's not gonna fit inside of another aircraft, or it would take too long or be uh, too much of a, a pain or a hassle to kind of facilitate moving it on any kind of traditional uh, rail or, you know, road kind of logistical means. So, yeah. uh, or it would just be too dangerous, or maybe they don't want to move it because it, it's too uh, high value of an asset to have yeah. it be out on the road, right? So they'll go ahead and put it in the Super Guppy and then move it that way.
0: Yeah, if you're talking about like a expensive space piece of equipment, one that's certified for flight, you don't want to start over from the beginning. If it gets a couple scratches on the rail, on the rail you want to put it into this nice uh, aircraft that's going... You know that this thing is going to transport it efficiently and safely to its destination. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. Yeah, like you said, for high-value stuff. So I'm guessing maintain a lot of these aircraft that we're talking about are relatively old right with the t-38 the super guppy the w57 all these older aircraft that you constantly have to maintain so how do you make sure that they are ready to fly
1: so again you know it's just a a brilliant maintenance team that does a (laughs) lot of the heavy lifting on that aspect Uh, so the super guppy resides out in el paso typically when it's not here in houston or out supporting other missions and out there they're uh, doing the maintenance to kind of get it ready and then also being out in el paso the uh, dry desert climate kind of makes it a little bit easier on the aircraft Uh, older aircraft in particular like to like that environment a lot better than they. The humidity of, say, Houston. Yeah, so I'm
0: imagining if you leave like a bicycle out here in Houston, you like it's a matter of time before the chains rust. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. okay, it's the same thing with aircraft. Um, so you got all these air, old aircraft. Are those? Are, is that the primary um, aircraft that you have here, or is there is there more that maybe you've had and have since gone? I know one of them was actually the uh, C9. I think was one of them.
1: Right, so the C9, which was utilized for uh, zero-gravity training, uh, and then before that we had a KC-135, and they utilized that uh, to support the, uh, they called that one the Vomit Comet, right? So that's where that name (laughs) came from. Uh, And that was just to do various parabolas out over the water, and they would simulate uh, zero-g, they would simulate uh, lunar gravity, uh, so they could do different things and essentially allow the astronauts the opportunity to kind of, Get some exposure to that kind of environment as opposed to having to wait till they got in space to actually experience it. So it's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I learned how to move around. I did have the pleasure of riding on, I don't think it was the C9, but it was uh, when uh, the education office was doing microgravity um, uh, flights for students. Uh, That was a program that they had a while back. I think it was called Reduced, Reduced Gravity Program. I actually was an intern there and got to ride with my mentor who was in charge of the program because i've been helping along with it unbelievable experience and it is so weird to try to get used to it but what's interesting is so the the it, it does this parabolic flight where it goes up and it's it's at like the peak of that parabola that you experience zero gravity and then when you go down you experience two g's and it's you're experiencing zero gravity for only like a couple seconds at a time and we did i think three 30, 32, I think it was 32 parabolas. I did not, it did not take long for me to sort of get adjusted. It's a, it's incredible how quickly the body can adjust to a completely new environment, something that it's never experienced before. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff.
1: Yeah. So when I used to fly, just, uh, experiencing, you know, different kinds of G levels uh, at whatever time in the aircraft, it it was always pretty astounding to me and how my body quickly adapted yeah. and how there would be things that I'd be doing inside the aircraft. And I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe we are just, you know, at 5Gs at that particular moment. And now uh, my body was acting and reacting in, the, in a normal capacity as opposed to Uh, any other time where you're just walking around on Earth in a 1G environment. So it was pretty interesting.
0: So are you uh, you a pilot, too, or did you just uh, ride on the aircraft when you were experiencing this?
1: So I was uh, a—before coming to NASA, I was actually in the military for 11 years. I served in the United States Marine Corps as a naval flight officer. All right. And so I was uh, on the EA-6B Prowler, and uh, I got to do that for a couple years. And then after that, I taught at uh, flight school down in Navy Pensacola. So it's been pretty interesting for me.
0: Okay, so you what? What's the what's the Prowler? What's that
1: aircraft? The EA6B Prowler is an electronic attack aircraft. Uh, okay, so its essential and primary mission was to deny and delay the enemy's use of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh,
0: what? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's straight up sci-fi, man. Uh,
1: after that, it gets pretty complicated. So. <laughs>
0: okay, we'll just we'll just stop there. Okay, pretty cool. So you experienced a lot of. Um, a lot of different forces on your body during some of those flights. Five G's, that's gotta feel pretty intense.
1: Well, yeah, so when you're kind of experiencing it, you don't really notice it. Uh, Really? There's uh, this one time that we actually pulled uh, more than five G's and I had no idea. The adrenaline was rushing so much at that point that I didn't even really notice it. Uh, And then there was another time that I remember I was kind of had my arms on the canopy rail and I looked away for a second and it was at that moment that the Aircraft turned, we initiated a pretty strong pull. We pulled about seven G's and I was like, okay, no big problem. And later that day, uh, my wife was asking me, she's like, Hey, where's that bruise on your arm? Where'd that come from? And I had to think about it for a second. And then I remembered where I had my arms, there was a little lever there. And so that lever had actually, uh, put an indention into my arm and caused it to bruise after that seven G's. So,
0: oh, wow. Cause it was seven G's of force being applied to your side right there. Yep. And you didn't even know it I had no idea. <laughs> How does it sort of feel like, um, how, how would you describe the feeling of, of extra G's? For those who haven't, who haven't ridden on a plane, I've, I've felt two G's. I mean, you could probably compare it to like a roller coaster ride or something, but, but the feeling of having additional gravitational forces on your body.
1: Uh, you probably say you don't notice it too, too much because you're typically sitting down uh, and you're uh, not going to notice it a whole lot until you try and maneuver or move some kind of appendage on your body then that's when you notice you're like oh wow my head feels very very heavy right now <laughs> or why does it feel like my arm is lifting a 60 pound weight uh so i can press this button it's uh, it's at that point that you actually start to recognize it and you're like oh wow this is this is kind of painful and then yeah. before you know it it's, it's over usually so
0: i guess uh looking straight is probably a good method whenever you're flying and, and experiencing these Gs. I, I imagine if you're turning your head just left or right or up and down and trying to look over. I know, I mean, I, just doing like a roller coaster ride, one of the many reasons I probably couldn't be an astronaut slash pilot is I get terrible motion sickness. So even like turning over to the side would be, I guess, with those gravitational forces would sort of induce nausea to a point
1: it can but again you know you're talking about how the body reacts and kind of adapts pretty quickly once you get used to that environment it it becomes kind of second nature to you and you get used to it pretty quickly Uh, a lot of the training that we do is to kind of prepare your body for those kinds of things Mm -hmm. so uh, we incorporate that into the various training aspects Uh, we do a uh, centrifuge training and there you get to one of the sets in there is you actually turn your head to the left Uh, And you are anticipating there's going to be some kind of gravitational force. And it goes basically from zero to about six and a half upwards of, I want to say almost nine Gs. Uh, And then at that point, you're supposed to be able to execute the uh, Hick maneuver in order to maintain consciousness, as well as keep the blood inside of your, uh, your upper body, as well as inside of your brain. And then after that, you're like, oh, okay. You start to learn how to deal with all these different things and how to kind of operate within that environment, as opposed to, uh, you know, just being, having it slammed into you immediately on day one. So we kind of babysit people through those processes.
0: What's that maneuver? You said the hick maneuver? Or is hick maneuver.
1: Called? Yeah, so essentially, uh, you're squeezing uh, all your lower extremities in order to keep the blood from just pulling in your feet. Uh, and then you're also kind of adjusting the way you breathe and uh, essentially making a hick sound, and that's closing off your, your throat and kind of the, uh, all the main arteries that run up to your brain. So that way you can squeeze that blood back into your brain.
0: Wow. You're literally forcing, okay. You're forcing the blood up. How do you squeeze your legs? Are you doing with your hands? Or are you just like flexing?
1: You're just flexing. So you're taught to kind of like squeeze from the bottom up. So you'll squeeze, uh, your calf muscles and your thighs, uh, your glutes, and then you're just trying to keep all of that as tense as possible. Uh, and then while you're doing that, you're doing the hick maneuver. So. Uh, in addition to kind of keeping that blood flow up uh, inside of your brain you're also keeping the air inside of your body because it's a huge exertion on behalf of whatever that individual is to kind of do all these things so you have to hold all that air because it's real easy to kind of let it all out because we're just used to breathing in a 1g environment right in and out all the time constantly so you kind of have to monitor that maintain it uh otherwise it, it can be uh lights out real quick.
0: I can see how you would probably want to practice that maneuver and get pretty good at it, because in the event that you would need to pull a serious amount of Gs, I know in the future, uh, one of the things they're looking at is, uh, for, for example, talking about Orion, you already hinted at EM-1, EM-2, some of these Orion missions. For crew flights, they're going to have an abort system on top, and you're already on top of the largest rocket in the world, the space launch system. But then if you want to escape the largest rocket in the world, you have to have a really a lot of force in a very short amount of time that's going to pull you away and you're going to experience some significant G's there. So I can see how if you, in an abort scenario particularly, you would really want to master that technique. I know while you were describing what you had to do, I almost passed out. So the fact that I'm talking right now is pretty amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we got aircraft operations at Ellington Field. And while we're on the topic of just Ellington and, and Johnson Space Center, uh, c- kind of to give the whole perspective of, of what, what's going on here in Houston, because um, I don't think we've talked about it before on the podcast. I don't think, yeah. So we got the Johnson Space Center, which is uh, ne- next to Clear Lake, right? Then we got uh, a little bit more north-ish is uh, Ellington Field. But we also have something called the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory, right? Right. Which is pretty close to Ellington Field.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I'd probably say it's kind of in between the both of us. So, in like, between. from uh, the flight line over at Ellington, you can kind of look over and see on-site. Uh, it, it'd be a lot quicker if I could just walk across, probably, as opposed <laughs> to driving over here. But, uh, yeah, you can see the neutral points, you lab, and then the rest of it, some of the buildings are kind of fainting in the distance. But, yeah, you can definitely see it out there.
0: Yeah, and that's, um, the I guess you can call it the giant pool. And yes. That's where they simulate um, extra vehicular activities suiting up in a spacesuit and going for a Mm spacewalk full-scale mock-ups in the pool you can pretty much get a feeling just like you can get a feeling for g's and get a feeling for for this uh flight simulation sort of feel within the t-38 you can get a feeling for what it's going to be like to do a spacewalk uh in the pool best probably one of the best simulators we have for what the actual thing is going to be like and i think um white sands test facility is also part of the story right
1: uh yeah but uh I would have to kind of do a little bit more research to kind of get you the information on that
0: one. Me too. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to bring someone on to talk about that. But that's sort of the. Uh, I think that's that pretty much is Johnson Space Center. It's it's mainly those facilities and probably a couple other things here and there. But all, everyone working together for human spaceflight, pretty much. Um, so you said you had a military background. Um, what other sort of? Uh, I guess most of the, <laughs> most of the. Uh, flight instructors and folks out at Ellington are going to have some sort of military or pilot background, right?
1: Right. So as far as the research pilots, uh, we typically recruit those individuals who have had a experience, one, in a jet aircraft and then two as an instructor, hmm. uh, because it's going to be their primary role and function. Uh, every one of our Research pilots goes on to eventually become some kind of other pilot in addition to that, uh, uh, whether it's on the WB or the Gulf Stream or the Super Guppy. yeah. Uh, but yeah, we typically recruit military pilots to be the research pilots out of there. So uh, it's probably one of the few opportunities that you get to fly after the military in a jet aircraft uh, and get to do a lot of the things that you did before. So, yeah.
0: so is there uh, elements of collaboration, because we're not the only NASA center that has aircraft like there's uh, actually i think armstrong uh space flight center over at edwards air face and edwards air base there it is in california they have some aircraft out there too is there elements of collaboration there
1: yeah so actually the uh, glenn research center they just came down with a t-34 which is a, a turboprop aircraft and we're able to get some of the astronauts in there and simulate some spin training Uh, and then get them the opportunity to kind of sit in the front seat and experience what it's like to fly from the front because it's a little bit easier to maneuver Hmm. uh, and fly in that particular aircraft. Uh, And then uh, uh, we also have, we're going to interact with Armstrong. We're going to help support them. Uh, They're going to bring down some uh, Hornets to do the uh, quiet sonic boom technology. Uh, they're going to be part of that development, so we're going to be helping them and supporting in that role.
0: Quiet sonic boom. That's pretty cool.
1: It's uh it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you say it out loud, but then uh a Quiet sonic gonna... thump, maybe? Yeah. Uh, so that's the idea is yeah. turn a sonic boom into a sonic thump, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then one, facilitate travel kind of across the United States uh, commercially with that technology, but also as far as space flight, right? Um, if you got to see the audio from uh, SpaceX when they landed those two rockets simultaneously, oh yeah, there was actually uh, a pretty loud sonic boom whenever they came back. Uh, you could hear it uh, in one of the videos that I saw. So, you know, developing all that stuff, it, it's going to be key for uh, future exploration and flight like that, if, especially since we're going to bring it back to the United States.
0: That's right. Yeah, that'd be cool if uh, supersonic flight can be just a little bit quieter. I mean, I would love to go to Europe in like two hours. That'd be pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure everybody would love that. (laughs) That'd be pretty great. All right. Well, Harry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sort of uh, telling the story of, of this aeronautics element to the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. welcome to space hey thanks for sticking around so today we talked about aircraft operations and the Ellington field part that is the whole story of the NASA Johnson Space Center. So this was episode 46 and I don't think we've addressed this on a previous episode. But we just sort of label it as an episode because it kind of helps us keep track of how many we've done so we can brag about it later. But really, you don't really have to listen to them in order. So there's a lot of other topics that you can cover on Houston. We have a podcast. We talk to a lot of different people, astronauts, scientists, engineers, flight directors, flight controllers, pilots, all these different cool people with Honestly, amazing stories. Amazing stories. So, you can go back and listen to any episode in any order. Otherwise, there's plenty of other NASA podcasts you can listen to. We got uh, Gravity Assist uh, out at headquarters, hosted by Dr. Jim Green. That's about planetary science, and uh, our friends over at AMES research center for the nasa in silicon valley podcast they talk about some of the research that goes aboard the international space station uh, on social media you can follow the nasa johnson space center accounts on facebook twitter and instagram uh, you can use the hashtag ask nasa on one of those platforms to submit an idea or maybe a question for the podcast and maybe we'll turn it into an entire episode or maybe even answer it in the beginning uh, for a future episode so this podcast was recorded on April 10th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Kelly Humphreys, Lori Wheaton, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, and Brandy Dean. And thanks again to Mr. Harry Roberts for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.